Well, I'd like to introduce you to our next speaker, Jason Johnson. Jason Johnson is a writer and a speaker who encourages families and equips churches in their foster care and adoption journeys. Jason is the author of All In Orphan Care and Beauty and Brokenness of or sorry, The Beauty and Brokenness of Foster Care. Jason will be speaking on the priority and Christian imperative of foster care and adoption. Uh, please join me in welcoming Jason Johnson. Thank you. All right, good morning. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we are going to spend the next 45 minutes or so leading up to our Q&A building a framework for uh, foster care and adoption through which we can think biblically, through which we can think through the lens of the gospel, and through which you can contextualize personally to yourself. I'm going to start us off by building this framework uh, by showing you uh, an iteration of my family. So this is the estrogen-filled, all pink, all drama, all the world, all the, all, uh, everything's a big deal all the time world that I come from. What you don't see in that picture, and this is a typical family picture, this was actually a, a really horrible thing that was going on here, where we're yelling at each other and smile, be happy, you know, stop doing that, and then when you get the picture, right? So this was actually a really not fun uh, moment, but this is where we are. What you don't see in the background is a female cat that we have, Sugar, who just kind of slinks around and mocks me the whole time. Uh, so that's the world I live in. That's part of our big backyard in College Station, Texas, where I live, and our from here in Aggieland. Uh, so I spend a lot of time out in the yard um, just mowing the yard, even when it doesn't need to be mowed or washing the car. <laughs> just that's my place that I go. So this is our family uh, about 18 months ago. Uh, it's still our family today, but this is what we look like about 18 months ago. The next iteration of our family uh, included another little uh, ball of estrogen. That's Allie in the middle. Allie came to us through Child Protective Services in Houston up into College Station uh, through foster care. Uh, Allie was quiet, reserved, um, and understandably so. Uh, what, what led her to have to be placed in our home was unspeakable and unfortunate and unfair to her. So she comes to us quiet. It took her a couple days to warm up. Um, and the first thing that she said to us, uh, her face lit up and she said, I, I think I fit in here. We said, what do you mean you fit in? Well, of course, absolutely. What do you mean by that? And it had dawned on her that our girls' names, including my wife, Emily, Macy, Presley, Darby, Marley, there's this I-E-Y theme going on there that we uh, inadvertently kind of trapped ourselves in after baby number two and realized we got to keep that theme going. It dawned on her that her name ended the same way that all of theirs name ended. Uh, their names ended. Emily, Macy, Presley, Darby, Marley, Allie. And in her world, that meant she fit in. And she was right. She did fit in. She had to leave us suddenly and unexpectedly and uh, go uh, be moved to a place that we didn't think was best for her. And so our story with Allie ended around 1130 at night on a Wednesday uh, with us having to pry her fingertips off of us as we're putting her in the backseat of the caseworker's car. And she's begging us not to make her leave. That's how our story with Allie ended. The trauma of that for her, the trauma of that for our family, I told my wife we need to take a break. Uh, I go away on a work trip. I come home to this situation in our home. <laughs> and this is, this is, there's no other way to describe what's happening in this picture other than it's just a situation, a big old situation. So it's hard to see, but that is Kiera back there in the background. Kiera is 23 years old. Those are her newborn baby girl twins, Aviana and Anaya. The only way to tell Aviana apart from Anaya is that Aviana had six fingers and six toes on each hand and each foot, which I thought was awesome. I thought, you know, and Kiera wanted to fix it, and I said, no, leave it. That's super cool. Who has that, right? That's the only way to tell them apart. The story of Kiera, Aviana, and Anaya was that the night before she checks into the hospital to give birth, she is homeless sleeping in her car. She delivers babies in the hospital in College Station. CPS shows up in her room uh, and essentially offers her an ultimatum. If you don't figure out what you're doing with these babies, by the time you leave the hospital, we're going to have to take them from you. We caught wind of this situation through close friends of ours in our church who happens to be on staff at our church. We had an emergency meeting at our house that night, the night before uh, Kiera is to be checked out of the hospital. And the question around our island and our kitchen between my wife, a good friend of ours, and his wife was not so much should we do something. It was really, okay, we need to do something. How is this going to work? 
ended up that uh, Kiera and the babies moved in with us upstairs in our house for about six months. We had the pleasure of helping her transition to this new rhythm of life, getting her set up with social services, moving her into an apartment. She lives across town from us now, and we go and visit her often, and Aviana and Anaya are doing great. Aviana still has six fingers and six toes, which I think is awesome. So I tell my wife, listen, uh, we talked about taking a break between Ali and this situation, but I don't know when I say the word break if you know what I mean by that word break, right? <laughs> What's that movie where uh, you keep saying, using this word, but I don't think that you... you Princess Bride, right? It's very much one of those. So we sat down and said, uh, what do we mean when we say the word break? We agreed that would be roughly two or three months, give us some, some breathing room. I go on a, way on, on a work trip on a Friday night, and I come home to this that following Wednesday. So this is... Um, Guiana and Jordan. Guiana and Jordan are our most recent additions to our family. Guiana came to us 17 years old, grown up in foster care since she was six, uh, and now finds herself with a baby boy, Jordan. Uh, so I've got a little bit of, of, of boy in my home now. Uh, uh, very rough story. Um, Guiana, very hard life, has been counting down the days since she was six years old that she would turn 18 and be able to be an adult and, uh, and be out of foster care. Uh, and she turned 18 this past February. We woke up that next morning, the morning of her birthday, and she was gone. She had run away with Jordan. Uh, everyone's working towards her finishing school, getting a job, taking care of Jordan. All these voices trying to work good in her life and all these other voices that have been speaking uh, loud and clear in her life that are working against that. And she's in this highly conflicted place a place that she didn't put herself. She was placed there uh, at the hands of others in a very unfair circumstance. And now here she is. So she ran away. Uh, it's been months and months of going back and forth and reconciling, and she is now still very much a part of our family, although her and Jordan are living in Dallas. And so this is our big, beautiful, kind of uh, messed up, interesting, crazy family. And if you had asked me five years ago when my wife and I became foster parents uh, in Houston through Arrow, who happens to be out there in the lobby, if you had asked me five years ago when I was still pastoring our church in the Woodlands, sit down and draw a picture of what you think your family will look like in the next five years, you better believe there is no way I would have ever drawn the picture that we have today. The picture we have today is, is much more multifaceted, is much more multicolored, is much more uh, unique and nuanced than I could have ever possibly fathomed. So I show you these pictures not to say, look at us. I show you these pictures to say, look at them. Look at Aviana, look at Anaya, look at Guiana, look at Kiera, look at Jordan, look at Allie, look at Marley who's sitting in my lap in our family picture. These are real human beings. These are real people. And so what we talk about this morning is not simply a concept. It's not simply a really neat theological idea that we should all mentally ascribe to. Fundamentally, what we talk about this morning is real-life human beings that are very much a part of the same journey of life as you and I are. And so it's not so much, at the end of the day, us helping them as much as it is all of us in this thing called life together. Stumbling along as we go in desperate need of grace in equal measures. This is an issue of humanity even more than it's a concept or a piece of theology. And so here's what I want us to do in the remainder of our time. I want us to ask a new set of questions. I think that you're here this morning, and if you're here this morning to, to engage in this foster care and adoption conversation, I think that you're here this morning with this first set of questions already answered. Questions that you're no longer asking. Is there a problem in our city as it, as it involves foster care? Is, it a, is there a problem in our country and even globally as it, as it pertains to kids needing families? I think you already know the answer to that question. So we're not going to answer that question. Does God care about this? I think that you're here on a Saturday, beautiful Saturday morning sitting inside when we should all be outside. Uh, that's how these conferences and seminars typically work. It's the most beautiful day of the year and we're all inside. I th because I think you already know the answer to that question. Of course God cares about this. And I also think you're here because that third question, you have felt the stirring within you. And to a certain degree, there's already a resoluteness in you about the answer to this. Yes, I know I should probably do something. 
And so I think that we need to move beyond, uh, we might say for many of us, some JV-level questions and move into some varsity-level questions this morning. It's not so much, is there a problem, does God care, and should I do something about it? Really, the questions for us become questions of costs. What's it going to cost me? Do I have what it takes? What if I fail? What's it going to look like? What if five years from now my family looks incredibly different than I ever planned or anticipated that it would? What if, what if, what if? I think those are the varsity level questions that are more intrinsically tied to something deeper than just these concepts of is there a problem? Yeah, and should I do something? Maybe, and does God care? Definitely. But what's it going to cost me? And what's it going to require of me? And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to frame out our discussion uh, with three pillars. I want us to look at our compelling why. Why is this a priority of the Christian faith? Why is this so centrally tied to not only our belief about who God is, but also our understanding of what kind of God God is? And why is this so intrinsically tied to our fundamental belief in and celebration of the gospel in our own lives? So I want us to look at our compelling why. I want us to to understand that this is intrinsically driven by a deep sense of gospel identity, which we'll see. And then I also want us to see that this is a much broader scope of, of there's, it's a, the implications have a much broader scope than, than what many of us may have come in here this morning thinking through. There's space for everyone, not only everyone in this room, but I'm convinced everyone in your church from the students to the senior citizens and everybody in between. There are implications that are, that are relevant and applicable for everyone. And so let's start with our compelling why. When we talk about why, why would we do this? I think we have to frame it fundamentally in our understanding of the gospel. And as we frame out that gospel this morning, I want to do it through two primary pillars. The gospel of our adoption. I want us to talk about our adoption into the family of God and the implications of what that looks like. But I also want us to talk about his incarnation. And we've already talked about that a little bit this morning. That if our adoption is central to our understanding of the gospel, then then the implications of adoption are also central to our application of the gospel. And if his incarnation on our behalf, Jesus coming towards us and wrapping himself in humanity is central to our understanding of the gospel, then our incarnation into the world around us is central to our application of the gospel in the city and in in the communities and in the world around us. And so let's begin with our adoption. The theology, the doctrine of our adoption can be found all over scripture. Romans or Ephesians chapter one says he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 says it this way. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. Consistently woven throughout the thread of Scripture is this idea that we were once not a part of the family of God, but because of the work of Jesus, we have been adopted into, we have been grafted into the family of God, and the implications are profound. It means that we can now refer to God, Romans 8 says, as Abba, Father. That term Abba there is a tender and affectionate form of the word Father. Our modern translation of that word might be the word Daddy. So it's the difference between my four girls coming and asking me, uh, Father, can we have some ice cream tonight? And I say, that's creep. Don't talk to me like you're British or Australian. I don't know. How do you say? You say Father there? No, it's Daddy. Daddy, can we have some ice cream? Now, that doesn't change who I am. I'm still the same guy that they're talking to. But there's a different connotation to the idea of Father than there is with the idea of, of Daddy. I'm still the same guy, and as they grow up to be 14, 15, 16 years old, I will become more and more father, especially to the boys that they bring around. But right now, what's most important for me uh, that my girls understand about me is that I'm daddy. There's an intimacy there. There's there's an affection there. There's a, a comfort there that they can come to me with. 
And so the implications of our adoption into the family of God are such that Scripture says outside of Jesus, our relationship with God was defined by odds and enmity. There was a brokenness there. There was a fracture there. But because of the work of Jesus on our behalf, we have been brought into this new postured relationship with Jesus. Once marked by odds and enmity, now defined by intimacy and affection. This complete shift. And we live under the rights and the privileges of God being our Father. He provides for us. He protects us. He, he even, Hebrew says, disciplines us because He loves us. That's what a good Abba does. And we are then therefore called sons and daughters of Him. This completely new identity. We live under the realm of protection and provision of God as our good Father. This is the idea of our adoption into the family of God, that God is the kind of God that takes what was once far from him and draws it into him and makes it his own. That's the kind of God that we serve. That's the kind of God that we celebrate. Those who were once separated from him, he goes to great lengths to wrap up and to bring into his provision and protection. That's the doctrine of our adoption so intricately tied up into and interwoven with the doctrine of what we understand to be his incarnation. The incarnation is the central core piece of theology and and so central to our understanding of of the gospel, but it's something that we, we typically only highlight once a year on December 25th. But the implications of incarnation are so much more far-reaching that it's, it's something that we've really got to bring back into the fold of our conversation as it pertains to not only our understanding of the gospel, but also our demonstration of the gospel. The incarnation uh, being this in Matthew chapter 1. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. That statement alone, the weight of that statement in Matthew chapter 1 cannot be uh, uh, overstated. The idea that God is no longer over there or out there, but God is now right here with us. God in his radical and aggressive and unceasing redemptive pursuit of humanity has brought him here with us. He's not way over there that we've got to work ourselves towards. He's not, he's not out there in some conceptual kind of mystic kind of way and we've got to uh, figure out the different techniques that we can implore to, to move ourselves to where he is. No, God has taken the initiative to come and be here with us. This is the doctrine of incarnation. The best way for me to understand it in very simplistic terms is through Tex-Mex. And when I travel around the country, especially like Northwest, Northeast, this illustration falls flat on them. But us Houstonians will understand. When you order chili con carne, you are ordering uh, basically queso with meat, con carne. That's, that's, God, that's the incarnation. It's God con carne. It's God with meat on my seminary professors right now are rolling over in their graves, just going, oh my, this, where have we gone wrong, right? It's God with meat on. It's God with flesh on. We can feel him, touch him. We can interact with him. God is with us. God is here. John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word took on our humanity and dwelt among us. And then in Galatians chapter 4, we see these two ideas beautifully married together when Paul, in one of the most profound statements on the gospel, lays it out in a very succinct way. In Galatians chapter 4, he says this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, incarnation, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. In a very profound statement on the gospel, Paul essentially says the reason that God came and wrapped himself up in our humanity was so that we could become children of his. So that he could bring those who were far from him near to him. 
The idea of incarnation is such that it, it, it flies in the face of religious logic. See, religion says to us that God's the kind of God that says, I see you where you are, I see your brokenness, I see your darkness, I see your suffering, I see your, your, your peril. Now, if you can just work your way to where I am, if you can just do the right things and clean yourself up enough, then maybe one day you can work your way to where I am. That's the contract of religion, that God makes this deal with us. There you are and here I am. You work hard enough and maybe one day you can be where I am. This logic plays itself out in this discussion that my wife and I have in our 15-year-long marriage. It's a discussion. It's not an argument. Uh, it's just a discussion that we have often. And it involves, it centers around this appliance in our home that most of you probably have. And it's an appliance that the name of the appliance that we spend hundreds of dollars on to purchase, the name of the appliance uh, suggests that it's capable of doing something that I'm convinced it's not actually capable of doing. It's the dishwasher. The name itself says, I can wash dishes. But guys, what do we have to do before we put the dishes in the dishwasher? We have to wash the stupid dishes. What's the point of this stupid box under my counter, right? I want to be able to leave crusted spaghetti sauce on my dish for a week and stick it in the thing that says it can wash dishes, but I can't. So we have this discussion. I never seem to clean the dishes well enough before I put them in the thing that I spent $500 on to clean my dishes, right? Or on the very rare occasion, super rare occasion, that we have somebody come and clean our house. Like we live like savages for a year. And like one time a year, we say we need somebody to bail us out from underneath the Cheerio crumbs, right? What do we have to do, guys, the day before the cleaning lady's coming? We got to clean up the house. Hey, we got to clean up the house today. The cleaning lady's coming tomorrow. What? What? No. This is the one day of the year that we can live like total animals because we know that rescue is coming tomorrow. Like we don't have to worry about a thing. And they're going to make every they're going to they're going to earn every penny that we're paying them tomorrow. That's the logic of religion. The logic of religion says that God's a kind of God who says you need to clean yourself up before you can finally come to really the only thing that can clean you up. And it just makes no sense. But what we see in the doctrine of incarnation and what we see embedded deeply into the essence of the gospel is that God is the kind of God that says, hey, look, I see you where you are, and I'm coming after you. I'm coming after you. I see you in your brokenness. I see you in your darkness. I see you in your peril. And I'm stepping into your brokenness. I'm wrapping myself up in your brokenness. I'm carrying your brokenness to the cross. I'm being broken by your brokenness so that you don't have to be broken anymore. That's the gospel. That's the gospel deeply rooted in the doctrine of incarnation. That God's the kind of God that sees hard places and broken people, and he moves towards them, not away from them. He moves towards them and not away from them. God is the kind of God that sees hard and broken, and he's compelled towards it. God's the kind of God that sees ugly and broken, and he's attracted to it. That's what we celebrate in the gospel. That the ugliest and most broken parts about who I am, God is most attracted to me because of that. And it flies in the face of this world, which says when you see broken and hard things, when you see difficult situations, you should step away from them, isolate, insulate, pull your kids out of those schools, move out of the neighborhood. You need to set up a life around you that in essence will allow you to forget that hard and broken things exist. That's the mantra of the world, and yet the mantra of the gospel completely flips the script on our posture and our perspective on hard and broken things. That if God is the kind of God that sees hard and broken people and places and moves towards them, then there's implications for that in our lives as well. And so James chapter 127, our favorite orphan care verse. And I travel all around the country, conferences and seminars and workshops, and uh, you'd be remiss uh, not to mention this verse when it comes to orphan care and foster care and adoption. But nine times out of ten, this verse is presented as the command that God has given us to care for orphans and widows, when in actuality, there is no command in this verse. This is not a command verse. 
This is a descriptive verse. This is describing something. This isn't telling us what to do. This is describing what it looks like when we do it. This word religion here is not our word religion. The word religion here literally means an outward display of something that's inwardly true. An outward display. One of the purest and most undefiled outward displays of the gospel which is inwardly true is to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, I don't think that James is isolating orphans and widows as the only application, as the only pure and undefiled uh, expression of the gospel that we can participate in. I don't think that if we went to James and said, James, I noticed you didn't mention homeless people. You must not care about them. Nope, don't care about homeless people. Orphans and widows, that's it. What about the poor? Nope, not the poor. What about uh, uh, human trafficking? Do you see human trafficking in there? Nope. All right. I don't think that's what James is saying. I think what James is doing here is he's describing something for us. He's essentially saying one of the purest and most vivid and clear and undefiled and beautiful demonstrations of the gospel that this world will ever see is when you and I step towards hard and broken places and people and not away from them. That's our compelling why. Then the people around you, your neighbors, your family, your, your co-workers look at you and say, I don't understand. The world says when you see hard and broken things, you should step away from them. But I notice that when you see hard and broken things, you step towards them. Why? That's our compelling why. Because the gospel is not just something that we celebrate intrinsically for us. It's also something that we demonstrate tangibly through us. In one of the purest and most undefiled demonstrations of the gospel that this world will ever see is when people like you and I see hard and broken things and we move towards them. That's our most compelling why. This is an issue that's driven by identity. Here's a picture of a parrot. You didn't get up this morning and think, I, I'm, I, I want to see a picture of a parrot this morning and learn about parrots. But you're going to. This is the St. Lucian parrots. Uh, this parrot exists only on the island of St. Lucia. It is native to the island of St. Lucia. In the late 70s, a college student by the name of Paul Butler, who was studying at a London university, caught wind of the fact that the St. Lucian parrot was on the brink of extinction. Uh, he was very much concerned with wildlife conservation efforts, and so as part of his graduate thesis, he moved to the island of St. Lucia, brilliant college kid, I wish when I was 23, uh, I thought I need to move to a tropical island for research purposes. So that's what this kid did. He spent six months studying the causes of extinction, and then he, he presents three solutions to the St. Lucian government. Solution number one, uh, harsher punishments for those who mistreat the animal. They either uh, capture it as, um, uh, as a domesticated pet, or they kill it to use its feathers for different purposes. Harsher punishment for those who mistreat it, create a bird sanctuary where birds like this and other species can live in a protected environment. Solution number three, create a more robust tourism industry where part of the money raised through tourism can go into um, uh, conservation efforts uh, on the island. These were his three proposals to the government. The government essentially, in an abbreviated form of the the story, responds to him and says, we agree. Uh, Fantastic. The problem with that is that all three of those require legislative action, which means that you need to get the people of St. Lucia to vote these new measures into law at the next round of, of voting. So Paul Butler, in his young college naiveness, says, no problem. We should be able to do that. So he begins this campaign uh, uh, preaching to the people of St. Lucia that their bird is in trouble. They should come out and protect it. That The next round of legislation comes and goes, and none of his measures pass. And he's distraught. He wonders why. Why didn't the people of St. Lucia come out and pass these new laws into effect? comes to find out that as he's done more research, he learns that the people of St. Lucia, number one, weren't even aware that they had their own bird. They didn't even know the bird was existed. They certainly didn't know that it was native to their island. And then more fundamentally than that, their question was, so what if it goes extinct? What bearing does that have on my life in any way? Does it improve my life socially, economically, uh, uh, spiritually, in all of these different facets? Essentially, oh, we didn't even know that, but so what? 
What bearing does that have on us? And so Paul Butler moves his strategy, his campaign, away from presenting facts and data. Did you know there's only 100 birds left? Did you know by, by this year, uh, in the coming years, they will, this bird will be extinct? Did you know? He moves away from presenting facts and data, and he, he develops this social campaign where he wants to instill within the people of St. Lucia a sense of national pride. He wants to build up the identity of the people of St. Lucia to such a degree that that they swell with pride for their country. And his primary focus is this. He wants the people of St. Lucia to identify proudly as St. Lucians. And he wants them to attach that identity to an action. And that action is this. We are St. Lucians, and when one of our own is in trouble, we take care of it. So he prints bumper stickers and billboards and goes to local ministers and asks them to weave this idea into their, into their uh, sermons. He, he puts out newspaper ads and commercials and the social propaganda campaign that lasts for a year uh, that is instilling within the people of St. Lucia. We are proud to be St. Lucians. And when anything begins to compromise, anything that is of St. Lucia, we step in and we take action. He spends a year swelling them up with a sense of national pride. The next round of legislation, they introduce these three uh, bills, uh, harsher punishment, bird sanctuary, and more robust tourism ministry, and they all three pass with flying colors. If you visit the islands today, I'm told that the St. Lucian parrot is a symbol of national pride on the island. It's everywhere. You can't get away from it. And I'm convinced that I need, I'm going to ask my boss to, to send me there for research purposes just to make sure. The point of, is this, is that Paul Butler tapped into something very powerful in the people of St. Lucia to the extent that that conservation effort has been replicated and duplicated in different measures and degrees in other parts of the country for the same purpose, to protect endangered species. He tapped into the power of identity. He tapped into the power of, of motivating people with a deep sense of identity. That, that began to form a different set of questions for them. See, generally speaking, and we even touched on this a little bit earlier this morning, when we talk about consequences, generally speaking, you and I are processing decisions through two primary categories. Category number one is outcomes, or what, like we said this morning, could, could be consequences. What's the outcome of this decision going to be? What's the outcome of this, this action going to be? Outcomes do, do this. They count the personal costs. These are big things and little things. Uh, what's it going to cost me if I eat the third you know, bagel in the back of the room? You know? uh, I don't know. What's it going to cost me if I stay up and binge watch four more episodes of, of whatever it is? This is us or Better Call Saul or whatever, you know, whatever your, your deal is. Uh, what's it going to cost me if I move my family across the country? What's it going to cost me if I quit this job to try to start this new business? What's it going to cost me? And is the cost worth it? What decision can I make that will maximize my own personal satisfaction? This is by and large the default decision-making pipeline of humanity. What's it going to cost me and how can I maximize my own personal satisfaction? We ask questions like this. What will it require of me? How will it make me feel? What are the long-term effects for me? This is outcome-oriented thinking. This is not a bad place to think. This is a necessary place to think. By no means are we saying that you should toss out the outcome-oriented pipeline. That's foolish. Nobody shows up at the lender's table when they're signing their mortgage papers having not counted the costs. It's important that you count the costs. But what Paul Butler did, and I believe what the gospel does, is that it taps into something much deeper than just consequences and outcomes. It taps into the power of our own personal sense of identity. And when we tap into the power of our own personal sense of identity, our identity drives us to make decisions that we might not normally have made otherwise, and to do things and go places we might not normally have done or gone otherwise. What identity does is that it flips the script on some of our questions and considerations. Instead of counting my own personal costs, what's it going to cost me if I do this? Identity-oriented thinking says, what's it going to cost others if I don't? So some of you are in the room and you're considering foster care and adoption, and one of your legitimate questions that you need to be asking is, what's it going to cost me? 
But our gospel identity does not allow our thinking to terminate on our outcomes-oriented pipeline. It demands that we move over into an identity-informed thinking so that we ask two very legitimate questions. Not only, number one, what's it going to cost us if we do bring a child into our home? But now, also, what's it going to cost that child if we don't? Slight change in language, significantly different implications. I don't just make decisions that maximize my own personal satisfaction. Now I want to make decisions that maximize the satisfaction of others. And it begins to form a new set of questions for me. It's not so much now about what will it require of me, how's it going to make me feel, what will it cost me. Now this new set of questions is this. Who am I? This is an identity-informed question. Who am I? What kind of situation is this? And what does someone like me do in a situation like this? This is identity-informed thinking. And as a Christian, as a believer, our identity, the answer to the question, who am I, is this. I am someone that God saw and moved towards. That God radically and aggressively and sacrificially pursued me. He saw my brokenness, he saw my, my struggle, and he was compelled towards it. That's who I am. Intrinsically, that's where my value is placed. I don't look in the mirror and base my value uh, upon what I see reflected back to me in appearance. I don't look at my bank account and assess my value bank, uh, uh, on, on how big or small my bank account is. I don't look at my positions of power or authority and assess my value in life based on where I sit on the social ladder or the, 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 the corporate ladder. I look at the gospel and I assess my own personal sense of value and worth on what Jesus has said about me and done for me. That's who I am. So who am I? I'm someone that is so valued by God that he would incarnate himself and radically pursue me to make me his own. Well, what kind of situation is this? Well, it's the kind of situation where maybe there's a child or a family that is in desperate need of somebody radically pursuing them. What does someone like me do in a situation like this? I count the costs... And then I consider those costs to be worth it for the gain that a child might receive. See, I want my own daughters to be thinking through identity-informed uh, pipeline. Uh, when they walk into the, the lunchroom and there's a new girl in school, the classic kind of parent scenario, right? We all want uh, well-adjusted, well-rounded kids that when they see the new kid sitting alone in the lunchroom, our kid is the kind of kid that goes over and talks to them and makes them feel welcome, Right? Here's the scenario that's playing out. Our daughter walks in. She sees the new kid. And these two pipelines kick into gear. Outcome-oriented thinking says, oh, gosh, I'll miss out on time with my friends. Uh, it might be awkward to talk to the new girl. Um, you know, I was really looking forward to just hanging out with my friends. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Identity-informed thinking says, who am I? Well, uh, I'm, I'm the kind of person that... that wants to make sure that people who are lonely feel welcome. What kind of situation is this? The kind of situation where there's a new kid in school and they don't know anybody. What does someone like me do in a situation like this? I count the cost of missing out on time with my friends and I go and I sit by her. This is identity-informed thinking. When they're teenagers and they end up at the party that I don't want them at because they want to be a light in a dark place. You ever been there, right? Uh, <laughs> And, and they're standing there being their awkward light in the dark place and someone comes and offers them a drink. I want the, their identity-informed thinking to be kicking in. Outcomes-oriented thinking says, well, you know what? How would it make me feel? Ah, pretty good. The cool kids might like me. I might get in trouble for it tomorrow, but it'll be worth it tonight. Identity-informed thinking says, well, who am I? Well, I'm not the kind of girl that drinks. What kind of situation is this? I'm being given the opportunity to do something that I don't do. What does someone like me do in a situation like this? I count the cost of maybe being made fun of or called names or not being included in the cool crowd, and I say, no, thank you. This is identity-informed thinking. So for you and I, the gospel presses deeply into this sense of identity, which then gives us the strength and the capacity to do things we might not otherwise normally do, to say things we might not otherwise normally say, and to go places we might not otherwise normally go. Because it, it, it runs so contrary to mainstream thinking that for most of the people around us, it just doesn't make sense. But that's when scripture says the cross is foolishness 
It's foolish for those who don't believe. Why? Because we are allowing it to ask an entirely different set of questions for the types of decisions that you and I as individuals and as families are going to make. And so what does that mean for us in light of the gospel? It means this, that we are the kind of people that see hard places and broken people and we move towards them, not away from them. That's just who we are. It's just what we do. That we incarnate ourselves into the most broken and hard places. Because that's just who we are. It doesn't mean that we don't count the cost. It doesn't mean that we don't consider uh, all the factors involved. But at the end of the day, it does mean that we don't allow our thinking and our decision making to terminate on outcome oriented uh, uh, thinking. But we move over into something deeper and more intrinsically valued. Uh, valuable in us, in our own personal sense of identity. So we have this unbelievably compelling why. That God is the kind of God that moves towards those uh, who are not his own and he makes them his own. We have this uh, power driven, driving us that is uh, deeply ingrained into the identity of who we are. And then finally, there's space for everyone involved in this. Everyone in this room, everyone at your own church, everyone in your community, there's space for everyone. And here's why that's important. It's important because this isn't a special thing that only special people do. We want this to be a normal thing that normal people do. I work with churches all around the country, and one of the things that I work with churches on is developing a strategy in their ministry that, allow, that, that reinforces this idea in their church um, uh, and, and creates a sense of normalcy. Because it's, it's counterintuitive. We want this to be a real special ministry in our church and a real special thing. I said, no, no, no. We want this to be a normal thing in our church that normal people in our church can do. There's space for everyone. We see this in, the, in Scripture, the body of Christ. There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities. The same God who empowers them all and everyone to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see the body of Christ described as a human body. Some are ears, some are eyes, some are hands, some are feet. This is the collective diversity of the people of God coming together. We don't come together in uniformity. Hey, become a Christian, and then you all need to talk the same, act the same, dress the same, eat the same, do the same things. No. That's uniformity. But the body of Christ is not uniformity. It's, it's diversity coming together in unity. Hey, you're an ear and you're an eye and you're a foot and you're a hand. And look, if we were all a bunch of right feet, we would literally run around in circles all day long and never get anything done. That's not the way it was intended to be. You need to be the best ear that you can be so that I can be the best eye that I can be. And you need to be the best hand that you can be so that that guy over there can be the best foot that he can be. That's how the body of Christ works. Essentially, we're not all called to do the same thing, but we're all certainly capable of doing something. We're not all called to do the same thing, but we're all capable of doing something. So let's take a, couple, look, take a couple looks at what that might look like on a micro level as it relates to foster care and adoption and bringing children into your home. It could look like this in your church. It could look like a family in your church bringing children into their home and then a bunch of other people wrapping around them in other types of ways. We're not all called to do the same thing. But we're all capable of doing something. Look, if everybody in your church was only bringing children into their home, then it, 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 it takes away from the capacity of people to wrap around and support the families that are. Or if everybody's just giving money or everybody's bringing meals, but nobody's bringing children into their home, then we're giving meals, we're cooking meals and we're giving money uh, to, uh, to something that's not even happening. It's, it's diversity coming together in unity and saying, look, I'm going to be the best eye that I can be so that you can be the best ear that you can be. That's how the body of Christ works. I think that in some very deep and profound and, 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 um, and, and in ways that I think will haunt us and stick with us forever, we've seen that more so in the last two weeks than I think most of us have in our entire lifetime. That everyone can do something for the common good. Everyone can do something. On a micro level, this is what it could look like as it relates to foster care and adoption. And so some of you are in the room and, and you need to bring kids into your family. 
That's just what you need to do. You've been praying about it, talking about it, praying about it, talking about it, reading books and blogs and attending seminars about it and praying about it and talking about it and waiting for the perfect time and when our kids are old enough and when we have enough money and when life is slowed down enough. These are three things, by the way, that never actually happen. (laughs) You're waiting for the perfect time and you just need to be told, look, there is no perfect time to foster or adopt. It will never be the perfect time. But that's not what faith is. Faith is not waiting for the perfect time. Faith is deciding to say yes, despite all the many legitimate reasons you might have to say no. So some of you have been praying about it for a whole long, a whole lot of time, and I'm convinced that at some point God kind of just stopped, I, this sounds sacrilegious, but he, he might have stopped listening to it, because when you start praying about it, he, again, he's, he's, he's saying, no, 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 no. Stop asking me about it. I've already made it clear to you. I've made it clear to you in your heart. I've made it clear to you in my word. You know what you need to do. Sometimes we're real good at, at veiling our delayed obedience and the spiritual kind of, you know, we're still praying and processing through it. And I don't think it fools God. It fools other people, but it doesn't fool God. And so some of you know that that's who you are and that's just what you need to do. And then some of you in the room, the absolute worst thing that you could possibly do right now at your stage of life, or maybe even ever, is to bring a child into your home. Like, please don't do it, right? And if you're unsure, like, hey, is he talking about me? Uh, Ask your friend, and if he's a good enough friend, he'll say, dude, yeah, he's talking about you. Don't bring a kid into your home, please. Don't do it. You can barely feed yourself, right? That doesn't mean that you check out and say, I guess there's no space for me. Oh, absolutely not. There's a critical space for you. Some of us are called to bring children into our home, and I'm convinced that the rest of us can find creative ways to serve and support those who are. I live in College Station. Half of our church, half of everything in College Station is college students. So the message at our church to 3,000 college students is not bring a child into your home. They can't. And if all that they hear from us is if you really, really love Jesus, you'll bring kids into your home, well, that's unfair to them. And the other 1,000 empty nesters, 70-plus-year-olds that aren't going to bring a kid into their home, that's unfair to them too. And so the message has to be contextualized. So college students, gosh, the absolute best thing that you can do is get certified to babysit for foster parents. And empty nesters or or those in different stages of life, uh, find creative ways. Be on the meals team. Uh, You own a a car, a a mechanic shop. Uh, We have people in our church that give free oil changes one Saturday a month to foster parents and single moms. These are people who've said, I know what I can't do, I know what I can do, and what I can do, I'm going to do for the common good. On a micro level, everyone can do something. On a macro level, we'll end with this uh, story. Imagine three guys walk up to a raging river. They see babies flowing down the river. The first guy jumps into the middle of the river and starts fishing kids out as fast as he can. The second guy runs downstream and starts to catch as many kids before they fall off the waterfall over the cliff to their death. The third friend runs upstream because he wants to figure out how in the world are these kids getting thrown into the water in the first place and what can I do to stop it? So you got three guys all jumping into the same river, but at very different points of the river, all trying to solve the same problem. We've got to get these people out of the water. So we could illustrate it this way. The first guy jumps in the middle. That could be intervention. I see the crisis right in front of me and somebody needs to intervene. The second guy runs downstream, and we could call that restoration. These people have made it so far downstream that there's, there's a restorative process that needs to happen in their life. The third guy who runs upstream, he's focused on prevention. I need to figure out how these people are getting thrown into the water in the first place, and we need to find a way to put a stop to it, to prevent it from ever happening. So in a very general sense, I know it might be hard to see from some places, but these are just examples. They're not an, it's not an exhaustive list. It's not comprehensive. But examples of the different types of things that could fall under these different points along the stream. When we talk about intervention, we talk about foster care. We talk about adoption. Maybe it's orphan care support or, or mentor programs, mentoring families in crisis. Right now, there's crisis right now, and somebody needs to jump in the river. 
When we talk about restoration, we talk about prison ministries, homeless ministries, human trafficking, transitional living programs. Statistically speaking, human trafficking, incarceration, and homelessness in the city of Houston and other major metropolitan cities around the country, the vast majority of people involved in those three spaces, homelessness, incarceration, and human trafficking, statistically speaking, the vast majority of them are products of the child welfare system. These are people that have made it so far downstream that they now find themselves in these places. And so it can be true to say, if we really want to attack the problem of human trafficking in the city of Houston, we also have to go upstream and attack the problem of foster care in the city of Houston. Because if these kids don't find homes, uh, safe and loving homes, then human traffickers are going to try to find a home for them. That's the continuum of care that we're dealing with. When you talk about prevention, you can talk about child sponsorship programs, pregnancy assistance centers, mentor programs, family development programs. How can we step towards hard and broken places and prevent certain outcomes that statistically are likely to evolve? How can we be involved at all different points of the continuum? And here's the beautiful thing on a macro level. When we say that not everyone's called to do the same thing, but everyone's capable of doing something, we just throw the floodgates wide open. The opportunities to engage along this continuum are endless and full of creativity. So the the question might not be, uh, or the statement might not be, look, if you really love Jesus, you should bring a foster kid into your home. That might not be where you are. That might not be the wiring that God has given you. But you might say, you're telling me that I can mentor families in crisis and prevent some of these outcomes from occurring in their life? We say, yeah. You say, gosh, that's where I want to be. Fantastic. And then here's the beautiful thing about this, is that we might all be jumping into the river at different points, but we're all participating in the same thing. It's all interconnected to itself. There is no isolated ministry here. There are no silos. We're all all addressing the same issues. We're just jumping into the stream at different points. We could talk about this for hours. I'm going to pray so that we can transition into um, our Q&A time and then get you out of here on time. Father, we do thank you for the truth of your gospel, which compels us in deep and profound ways. I pray for wisdom and clarity for us as individuals, as families, as couples, as communities of churches, that you would give us um, boldness, that you would give us clarity, and that you would begin to reframe some of our thinking so that we might be most faithful to what it is that you have called and crafted us to do. May we be a people, Father, that are driven so deeply by our compelling why of the gospel, that when we see hard and broken places in people, we step towards them and not away from them. Give us wisdom to do that well. It's in your name we pray. Amen.